Okay, I'd like to, uh, to get us started. Uh, first of all, I'd like to welcome you all to our LAPA EU program, uh, program uh, for this afternoon and to say that it's really, I'm delighted to see so many of you, especially in light of the weather uh, and in light of the venue, which is a venue we're hoping people are getting used to here in, uh, in Lewis Library. Um, we're absolutely delighted because some of us felt actually a week ago, in light of the news of Berlusconi's departure from Italian politics, at least for now, that he must have feared the Lapa panel that was coming this week. And he knew what Maurizio Veroli would say about him at this panel. And in anticipation, well, okay, so maybe Berlusconi was pushed out a little bit more by bankers um, than he was by the critique that Veroli has made of Berlusconi. Um, but as all of you know, and as you've seen outside, the topic of today's panel revolves around the publication of Maurizio Veroli's new book, which is called The Liberty of Servants, Berlusconi's Italy, which I wave around because it's got to have one of the best book covers of all times, um, and which I want to congratulate Princeton University Press for having, uh, having produced. Um, there are some books outside. There'll be a book signing uh, after the event. Um, and what you may believe, and I'm glad that so many <laughs> folks have shown up because some people might have thought, with developments that happened in the last week, Berlusconi is gone. But if you read Maurizio Veroli's uh, um, actual op-ed last week on Friday, um, one of the things he says is, and one of the things you'll know if you read the book, is that Berlusconi has remade himself multiple times. Um, even if he is personally out of office, his party and his kind of system of politics remains. And so in some ways, it's more urgent than ever to understand the logic of Berlusconi's rule uh, in, uh, in Italy, and there is no better person to talk to us about this than Maurizio Veroli, who is professor of politics here and political theory. Uh, he has an affiliation with the Department of History. Um, he's one of the world's leading experts on Machiavelli and on the history of political thought. Um, he has a number of awards and honors uh, and publications uh, in Italian, just limiting um, to, the, to the English language record. Um, he is somebody that every single undergraduate who encounters Machiavelli has got to encounter because, among other things, he wrote the introduction to the Oxford University Press um, edition of Machiavelli's The Prince. Um, and he's been at Princeton for a long time, although he's phasing into what some of us don't want to think of as retirement because he's still with us. But he's spending at least part of his time every year now in Lugano, Switzerland, where he runs an institute in the center where... We're all delighted that he brings some of us over uh, to see him there. Um, and so I want to present, what I'm going to do is just introduce Maurizio Veroli now. He's going to talk about his book, about Berlusconi's Italy, and then I'll be back to introduce our two commentators who will follow Maurizio Veroli's talk. And so with that, we're absolutely delighted to bring Tulapa to the EU program to all of you, one of Berlusconi's famous critics and one of its most distinguished and intellectual ones. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kim, for your very, uh, even too generous words. And uh, I, was, I wish to thank um, Leslie Gerwin and the LAPA program for having put together this uh, occasion. And I wish to thank uh, the James Madison program and the program on the European Union for having sponsored it. For me, it's a great honor to be able to uh, discuss about my book, Berlusconi is Italy, The Liberty of uh, Servants. I must, however, confess right away 
Kim, is it right if I speak for 12, 15 minutes, yeah. not a second more? You know That's how impeccable I am in this. No, 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 no. It's uh, 15. I want to hear Master Muller and our, the other friends who have joined the, the panel. Um, I, uh, I must, however, confess sincerely that I came to this uh, panel with trepidation and anxiety. Trepidation and anxiety because LAPA has organized an impressive publicity for the event. The entire campus is uh, full of images of Berlusconi, practically every pole. <laughs> and says, Nothing like that has been seen since the days of former Soviet Union. Uh, and I was concerned that uh, given the fact that we have many young women and men in, on campus, they might suffer irreparable moral and psychological damages for seeing the face of Berlusconi so prominently displayed, and they might uh, sue me for moral uh, liability. I, was, I hope this won't happen. I came, uh, I tried to overcome the anxiety because I'm happy to present and discuss the book in a scholarly context. For the simple reason that this is not a pamphlet. Uh, at least I have not written it as a pamphlet. It is a, a book that I wrote, uh, uh, it came out in Italy in 2010, in Italian first, and it was a book that I wrote uh, following the suggestion of the predecessor of Robert Tempio, Ian Malcolm. I thank Robert Tempio and Princeton University Press for the splendid job they have done. Uh, he asked me a simple question. Uh, Maurizio, can you explain us, us meaning the uh, English reading international community, what is going on in Italy? Is Italy still a free country or not? That was the question. And I put myself uh, to work. And the first thing I have done was uh, to review the literature. And the literature, international literature, and the Italian literature on Berlusconi, but particularly the, the American and English literature on Berlusconi, focuses on uh, the most appalling uh, Polling aspects of Berlusconi's regime, the sex scandals, the corruption, and the various uh, disturbing situations. For instance, the fact that um, Berlusconi's most loyal friends, like uh, Cesare Previti, they have been found guilty of bribery and sentenced to six years in imprisonment. Another very close friend of Berlusconi, Marcello Dell'Utri, has been sentenced in second degree to eight years of imprisonment for ties with the Sicilian Mafia. In the, in the newspapers, uh, Berlusconi's governor has been described with uh, a very uh, high-minded uh, words of praise, like bordello state, <laughs> or from horocracy, a former government that has not been described by uh, Aristotle, to my knowledge, yet. Uh, also, newspapers have pointed to the friendship of Berlusconi with uh, leaders of impeccable democratic and liberal credentials like Putin and Gaddafi, the late Gaddafi. Then the question, but I wanted to go deeper as a scholar. Uh, I'm supposed to try to go deeper and to try to see 
uh, what in fact is the case. Therefore, I have examined the existing definitions or descriptions of Berlusconi's system or regime. One uh, uh, line of interpretation goes under the idea that Berlusconi is similar to fascism, that Berlusconi is similar to Mussolini. I have not been persuaded by this uh, theory, by this interpretation. Fascism seized power thanks to the irresponsibility of the Savoy monarchy through uh, the systematic use of uh, political violence, assassination of political opponents like Matteotti, Gobetti, and Mendel, and others. Nothing of that sort Berlusconi has ever done. He has never imprisoned, never assassinated political opponents. Mussolini used the private army, the black skirts. Berlusconi has never had a private army. In addition, uh, fascism was sustained by an ideology of national regeneration. Nothing of that sort can be found in Berlusconi's language or practices. My colleague, uh, my colleague uh, uh, Giovanni Sartori, uh, proposed some years ago the definition of Berlusconi's system as a sultanate, Berlusconi like a sultan, a oriental sultan, an absolute despotic ruler. The sultan is too remote, is exotic, it's a form of government that is based on tradition. So I thought we had to go deeper and try to see better. By the way, allow me to uh, try to make explicit the methodology that I am using. I have always practiced what is called interpretive political theory. Namely, it's a type of political theory that tries to understand the meaning of practices, of texts, of events, or rituals. I have always tried, and in particular in this book, to treasure one of the most precious lessons that I got from the late Clifford Geertz, a man whom I remember very fondly. <laughs> Clifford used to say, to describe his own work as an anthropologist, as an effort to understand what the hell is going on there. That's exactly what I tried to do, what the hell is going on in Italy. If you exclude fascism and sultanate, you are left with uh, another definition that is current in the literature. Namely, Berlusconi is just uh, another demagogue who is capable of controlling a corrupt demos through a system of properly tamed media. That's true, Berlusconi is great at fascinating the demos with theatrical techniques. I've described his techniques. The techniques designed to create awe, admiration for him in the demos. All his, he's a master of the well-known, you know, Princeton students, they know how uh, um, keen I am to, to work on political communication. All his speeches are exemplary in the sense that Berlusconi is a master of the art of telling the demos what the demos wants to hear. 
All his speeches are extremely comforting. In fact, as of uh, two weeks ago, Berlusconi insisted there is no crisis. Who is going to say? Why? Why people say there is crisis, economic crisis? That they must be saying. I think it's going perfectly well. Why do you worry? And very simple. He repeats always the same concept in any of his speeches. But there is something that is special about Berlusconi as a demagogue. Demagogues are normally men of the people. Namely, they come from the people and they know how to speak like the demons because they belong. Berlusconi is not. Berlusconi is immensely wealthy. So one will be tempted to say that we are dealing with a, a type of oligarchy. You see how protean is Berlusconi. You try to capture it from different angles, he escapes. So what have I proposed in this book? As usually, as I usually do, I try to go back to history. And in history, I have examined the theories of tyranny. Guess what is the country that has produced the largest numbers in history of tyrannical governments? It's Italy. And in Italy, we also have Dante in the Trecento. Le tutte le città d'Italia sono piene di tiranni. All cities of Italy are full of tyrants. And in Italy, we also have the a, a, a remarkable wealth of um, theories of tyranny. Not surprisingly, the late Stanley Kelly used to say to notice that in Italian, he used to do crossword puzzles in Italian. We have the longest list of words to describe sly boots, simulators, liars. And he said, Maurizio, the Eskimos have a huge number of, no, of uh, words to describe snow. Is it perhaps the case that uh, this, you need so many words in Italy because you have an abundance of that typology of people? <laughs> in Italy, there is the theory of veiled tyranny. It was elaborated by the 15th, uh, 14th century uh, legal scholar Bartolus. The veiled tyranny is a form of power in which a man is able to impose his own will and his own interest. Therefore, it's tyranny in a proper sense, in an Aristotelian sense, but it's veiled, is uh, covered, it's not open, it's not based on the use of violence. It does not need to change the constitution. So you can have tyranny within a republican constitution, tyranny without violence, tyranny without changing the rules of democratic formation of the sovereign will. Veiled tyranny. In, uh, uh, that's exactly what I think is the case in Italy. That's the best account. My um, second, and I'm going to end, uh, observation was, uh, uh, address was uh, designed to answer the question, but is still a free country, Italy? Is Italy still a free country? Well, in order to answer the question, I have to use uh, an interpretation of political liberty, and guess which one I've selected? The Republican interpretation of political liberty. Classical Republican interpretation of political liberty that was framed by Cicero and then uh, rephrased by Aristotle up until the works of my colleague Philip Petty. What does the Republican theory of political liberty assert? It asserts that to be free does not mean, does not, mean not to be obstructed, as Hobbes maintains, or Isaiah Berlini maintains, or Benjamin Constant maintains. But 
It means not to be subject to the arbitrary or enormous power of a man. To be free means to be free from domination. And you have domination when there is a man with enormous or arbitrary power. Now, the question is, uh, is that the case in Italy? Do we, have, do we have in Italy a situation that can be described as lack of freedom if judged from the point of view of the Republican conception of political liberty. In order to understand why Republican political theorists insisted so much on the idea that if you have an enormous power, you are free, are two. The first is that if you have an enormous power, then the consequence is that the man with such an enormous power will likely use it for his own interest. The second consideration is that if you have a man with an enormous uh, power, then you have the creation of the servile mentality, flattery and so on. Now the question that I, uh, had to, I have to answer, I have to answer is simply this, is in fact, the case that in Italy we have a, a situation in which there are basic liberties are guaranteed, political liberties are in place, but we are unfree if we judge, if we adopt the Republican concept of political liberty. I think the answer is yes. In Italy, the simple, the mere existence of the enormous power of Silvio Berlusconi has made Italians unfree. In the sense, they are free, yes, but in the sense of the liberty of servants. I explain this and I end. Is the, this the case that in Italy we have an enormous power or not? That's the basic question. Well, no political leader in any democratic or liberal country in the past or in the present has ever had a power comparable to the power of Silvio Berlusconi. Berlusconi concentrates in his own end an enormous wealth. It's in the last income declaration income tax was about six billion euros. That's what he owns. Second, he owns a media empire. Directly, he owns three nationwide television networks, plus when, as a prime minister, he controls at least two, plus newspapers, plus publishing houses, and so on and so forth. Now you sum the two, and you then you have a third element of power. He owns a political party. I think that not even the most... Uh, Charismatic American political leader as was ever able to own the Republican or the Democratic Party. Maybe they wished, but they weren't able to. You sum the three, you have an enormous power. Second, can we assert that because he had such an enormous power, Berlusconi was able to, to have his will, to affirm his will? and to sustain his own uh, interests. Well, maybe in the discussion I can illustrate to you a nice list of laws 
passed by Berlusconi, known as Leggi ad persona, laws ad persona, designed to sustain specific interests of Silvio Berlusconi. The most recent one is a law that repeals the regional law of the region of uh, Sardinia, prohibiting to build houses and complexes too close to the beach. Berlusconi repealed, had the state repealed that law, Guess who is the proprietor of the tourist complex that was built there? His daughter, Marina Berlusconi. That is just an example, but I have a long list here of laws. Third, and I am ending. Can we say that the uh, presence of uh, the enormous power has created or reinforced or, or strengthened the servile mentality of the Italians? Well, I have plenty of evidences for that, including a set of remarkable pieces of poetry, poems written by the ministers of Berlusconi. I have never seen, I don't think that the ministers of Angela Merkel write poems in praise of Berlusconi, poems that go like this to Silvio. <laughs> life savored, life preceded, life chased, life loved the life vital, life rediscovered, the life splendid, life unveiled, life made new to Silvio. <laughs> there are, uh, I want to stress that when I talk of servitude, I mean servitude in the sense of voluntary servitude. Human beings who want to become servants freely of a man in order to obtain honors, privilege, privileges. The servant is different from the oppressed. The servant wants to become like the, the Signore. He speaks like the Signore. He thinks like the Signore. There is a beautiful piece in a 16th century text, uh, a handbook to teach courtesans, who says, the Signore has not yet moved his lips. The good servant already knows what he's going to say. And he has accommodated his will to please him. How can he do that? Because he thinks like him. He feels like him. So the servant, it becomes somebody else. Italy is a country of individuals who are not themselves. They live for somebody else. The great majority, not all of them. The country of um, appearances, of simulation. A country of people who have lost moral strength. Because they are no longer themselves. They do not have moral liberty, inward liberty. And when a country is like that, liberty is fragile. Even political liberty is fragile. If you ask me a definition of Italy, I would say Italy is the country of fragile liberty. One last word on the Constitution. Berlusconi has been since day one against the Constitution of the Italian Republic. He has passed a, a project of massive reformation of the Constitution in 2005 that was rebuilt through a referendum in 2006. Why is he against the Constitution? For two reasons. One is ideological. He thinks that the, the Constitution was written by the communists. He's not very strong in history. <laughs> the second is that he can't stand limitations to his power. 
On the aftermath of an important uh, deliberation of the Italian Supreme Court that struck down an horrible law passed by Berlusconi, he said in Italy there is no longer the, uh, the, the uh, democracy. Because the Constitution says that the sovereign power belongs to the people. This is wrong. The Constitution says the sovereign power belongs to the people that exercises it within the limits determined by the Constitution. He can't stand that. I think, on the contrary, that if Italy will, eventually, I think it's very difficult, almost impossible, see or experience a kind of civic regeneration, it will begin from the Constitution. The Constitution has been the real barrier against the further expansion of Berlusconi's power. It can be the beginning of a possible civic regeneration. Maybe. Thank you. I'd like to say we have two uh, wonderful, distinguished commentators to talk about the book and about uh, Maurizio's provocative introduction. Um, our first commentator is Jan Werner Müller, who is here in the politics department. Um, Jan works on uh, European intellectual history. Uh, his most recent book, which has just been out for a couple of months, is called Contesting Democracy, which is an intellectual history of 20th century uh, Europe. Uh, he's also the author of Another Country, and also another book called A Dangerous Mind, and another book called Constitutional Patriotism. Jan has worked in and around the scary thoughts of Carl Schmitt, which makes him someone uniquely qualified to talk about Berlusconi in another, another kind of European threat. Um, we also have as our second commentator uh, on the panel today Dan Kellerman, and we're thrilled Dan was able to come over from Rutgers, where he is the Monet Chair and Director of the Center for European Studies. Um, uh, uh, Dan uh, Kellerman is the author most recently of a book called Eurolegalism, The Transformation of Law and Regulation in the European Union, which just came out this year, uh, and also The Rules of Federalism, Institutions, Regulatory Politics in the EU and Beyond. And so what we anticipate from Dan, although he's free to talk about whatever, is Berlusconi in a kind of EU perspective. And so please welcome Jan and, and, and uh, Dan and our commentators. Thanks, Kim. I stand up if I, if I may. I should stress that I'm not speaking as an expert on Italy. I'm only a political theorist and, if you like, a concerned European citizen for whom Italy, for about 20 years, has been a great beacon of hope. Because what it shows, it seems, is that Europe's most talented populist can only ever be defeated by university professors. First, Professor Prodi, and now at least indirectly, Professor Monti, seem to be the only kind of people who somehow make some headway in getting this man out of power, as opposed to the official opposition, which has been suffering from all kinds of problems. I briefly want to do three things. Um, first of all, I want to pose what you might call the question of post-democracy, and in particular, ask whether Italy is somehow the precedent of developments in democracy in Europe and maybe more globally, or whether Italy is somehow just an exception and there are no lessons for the rest of the world. 
Secondly, I want to take up one of Maurizio's main themes in the book, which he didn't so much talk about now in his remarks, namely what you might call the moral psychology of resistance or also the moral psychology of citizenship. What does it take to reinvigorate civil society and regenerate a genuine sense of responsible citizenship? And then lastly, very briefly, I want to say a few words, given what has happened in the last 10 days or so, about the legitimacy of outside intervention in a country like Italy, especially in the way that it has unfolded with the EU in the last 10 days or so. Before taking up these three things, though, let me underline one thing. Maurizio said a little bit about his own methodology, but from the perspective of political theories, I'd like to underline that the book is marvelous, not least in showing how one can productively engage with the history of political thought for the sake of present-day analysis. And it's also marvelous in having shown or to some degree solved a puzzle which many people have had over the last 10 or 20 years, namely the question of republicanism in the real world. It's a nice theory, but what does it mean in practice? Well, the answer to some degree is in the book, and I recommend that you look for that kind of answer in Maurizio's volume. Okay, first of all, the question of post-democracy, and Maurizio touched upon this in his remarks. A lot of people have had an uneasy feeling, a kind of intuition that something bad is going on with democracy, precisely in the sense that the institutions of democracy remain in place, that you have what appear to be relatively free media, you can buy communist newspapers, etc., etc., and yet there's a sense that the substance of democracy is being hollowed out, that it's a facade and something else going on behind that facade. And that has indeed given rise to suspicions which are grounded in history. Maurizio talked about the worry that it's fascism all over again. He gave some reasons for why it isn't. But maybe it's also worth remembering that Wilfredo Pareto advised Mussolini for at least for a couple of years to leave the old institutions in place, to go easy initially, and only then go for the official establishment of a dictatorship. People also remind, were reminded of Primo Levi's remark already in 1974 that every age has its fascism and that fascism might look different in different ages. And that kind of culminated, that sentiment culminated in what became a sort of famous expression by the Italian writer Claudio Magris who said Italy might be witnessing the rise of a soft totalitarianism. Maybe a contradiction in terms, but nevertheless, it's trying to get at this intuition that something important is going on. Now, Maurizio, in a sense, has added to this analysis through the idea of the court system, which he talked about in his introduction. And in a sense, what has happened last week beautifully validated that interpretation. It precisely showed that as soon as the feudal law has nothing more to offer, as soon as, in a sense, he's run out of resources and promises to keep the serfs in a subordinate position, to keep them loyal, things will no longer work. And in a sense, it also beautifully showed another aspect of Maurizio's diagnosis, namely that Berlusconi's reign involved a kind of privatization of the political. Um, that in the end, he simply called the people who didn't follow him anymore traitors as if they had sort of privately betrayed him 
as opposed to saying, well, they're actually politicians who are responsible to responding, responsible for responding to larger challenges, the common good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in that sense, it's a beautiful vindication of what the book contains as a um, as a diagnosis. One question one might pose is why Berlusconi's ultimate, if you like, patrimonial project didn't quite come to pass. If I understand it correctly, the completion of this project would have looked like the following. It would have involved Berlusconi as the president, but a different kind of president than the current president, who isn't all that powerful, but as the president and a kind of paterfamilias who presides over the Italian family, who is a family of liberty, fully united. And then there are a bunch of other people around who are communists and illegal immigrants. But everybody else is fully united in their belief in the leader, the father, and more abstractly, in liberty. It's a question why that never quite came about. Having said that, it seems to me, that, and now the court's extended analysis also has certain limits. And what I mean is this. It's true that, as far as I know, most ministers in Angela Merkel's cabinet do not write poems for her. And we might speculate why that is the case. But in the old days, Günther Grass kind of wrote a book for Willy Brandt. And Willy Brandt certainly had a kind of court of intellectuals and others around him. Obama has undoubtedly structures of dependency around him, as we've now learned in some detail from Ron Susskind. Um, everybody, in a sense, has structures of dependency around them as long as they are a particular kind of power holder. And it seems to me that also usually applies to democracies. What strikes me as unusual about Italy, and this is in no way an original thought, is simply the extent of clientelism, the way it has extended over many decades, and the way, quite frankly, it has involved not just one man or not just one party. Reflected, of course, in the common perception that there is a class of politicians, La Casta, which in a sense is permanently occupying the state, or so it seems. If that's right as an interpretation, then Italy might indeed be an extreme case, but not such an unusual case. You could say that Occupy the State is a kind of transnational movement because you see both classes in many countries sort of colonizing the state. The Italian exception might simply be due to the fact, as Maurizio says, says in the book, I'm quoting, the upper classes of Italy are the most cynical of all their peers in other nations, but it's a question of degree and not of kind. So that's one possible interpretation, um, but there's another one. There's one that actually suggests that Italy is the exception and not a precedent. The word post-democracy, which I used earlier, as many of you will know, originated with the British scholar Colin Crouch, who was trying to explain this phenomenon of a hollowing out of democracy by saying that for various historical and political and economic reasons, um, most Western states are now systematically biased to something that for shorthand we can call neoliberalism, and which essentially involves the domination of large corporations and firms. Now, to some degree, you might say, well, Italy fits into that category too, because if I understand it correctly, Berlusconi's strategy was always to combine neoliberal economic policies, a kind of patrimonial or prodomo set of policies, primarily benefiting himself, and then also a certain amount of populist crackdowns involving internal security, especially against immigrants, illegal immigrants. And all of this nicely held together with a kind of calculated public infantilism uh, and a kind of light touch, which in a sense put people at ease because they thought it was all about, about, cl about clowning 
clowning around. But arguably, the thing that didn't work in this strategy, and which has arguably led to his demise, is precisely the neoliberal bit. I mean, very early on, it seems, Italian business was not happy with what this government was doing, or rather what it was not doing, over a very long stretch of time. If that's right, and especially questions to Maurizio to hopefully answer later on, if that's right, then Italy is indeed a very worrying case, but it doesn't really fit this larger template. It really was, in a sense, about one man and one man trying to basically, above all, care for his self-preservation. And it's not a template that we will see in any other country. Okay, briefly, very briefly, second chapter, um, what I call the moral psychology of resistance, or more precisely, two different strategies, which it seems to me Maurizio outlines in the book. One has to do with duties, and one has to do with indignation. In parts of the book, Maurizio essentially calls on citizens to realize that it's not all about liberty, Berlusconi's rhetoric notwithstanding, but being a citizen above all means fulfilling duties and caring about the common good. He, in fact, at one point goes so far as to say, duty is liberty, which I dare say is not a sentence which would have pleased Isaiah Berlin terribly much, but one can see why specifically in the Italian context it's very important to say something about liberty, because clearly Berlusconi has talked so much about liberty. All the, move, all the success, successive movements and parties had liberty in the title. In fact, as many of you will remember, even the old Christian Democrats in their logo, in their, in their coat of arms, had the word libertas on a shield. That was the thing that Christian Democrats were defending. Clearly, in the Italian context, liberty for people like Berlusconi has always meant negative liberty. Liberty to do your own thing, uh, and in a slightly more negative interpretation, a kind of familialism. Leave us alone, let us do our own thing. We don't care about larger issues. And clearly, Maurizio is right to say something about this and to try to sort of wrest the concept of liberty from the other side. At the same time, I'm not sure how far it can go to talk so much about the common good. Because to put it very crudely and bluntly, most of us don't always really know what the common good is or can very easily agree on what the common good is. So an alternative strategy, which I also see in the book, is what I call moral indignation, where Maurizio says, look, what really would reinvigorate citizenship is giving people a sense that they ought to be angry, they ought to feel violated in their dignity in the face of major injustices. And arguably what we've seen unfolding in the past 11 months or so in all kinds of very different national and political contexts seems to give some credence to the moral motivating power of exactly the sense, of the power, if you like, of indignity. My claim would be that it's partly a powerful moral motivation because indignation somehow refers back to at least some shared values. You can be indignant if you feel that somebody has violated some kind of shared understanding or an existing constitutional settlement. And you basically tell them, look, we were supposed to do it like this, now you're doing something completely different. Um, and that, in a sense, then raises the question, and it's one to which Maurizio also came back at the very end, to what extent today in Italy there is any sense of a shared project, and in particular to what extent the Constitution retains the symbolic power which clearly Maurizio would like it to have. Or, to put it somewhat more crudely, 
is there any constitutional patriotism in Italy today or not? A completely open, innocent, empirical question. Lastly, very briefly, um, the legitimacy of outside intervention. Um, even every, even anybody who is glad to, to, to be rid of Berlusconi, it seems to me, has to pose themselves the question whether what actually unfolded uh, is somehow normatively a good thing or a bad thing. This morning, as you know, saw the installment of a cabinet that was characterized, according to Mario Monti, this is a quote, by the non-presence of politicians. Now, the question, of course, is to what extent, not even the EU, because as we all know, this wasn't done by the European Commission, which has been entirely sidelined in the last couple of months. It was more or less done by two very powerful national leaders in Europe. To what extent this can go on, that powerful European leaders can basically say, we've got to install a non-political government for the sake of fulfilling a number of more or less technocratic goals and criteria. It raises very, very profound questions in democratic theory. Uh, I'm not sure we have any good answers to this, but it seems to me that as much as I suspect many of you uh, are willing to celebrate what has happened recently, the way it has happened, uh, the way in which in many ways it didn't in any way come from within, it precisely didn't involve any major mobilization of civil society seems to me is deeply worrying uh, and in a sense presents us with yet another new set of questions rather than answers. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Kim. Thanks, Maurizio, for the chance to read and comment on your book. Now, you told us how you approached this session with trepidation and explained why. I also approached it with trepidation for slightly different reasons. Is that I've been teaching uh, European politics and working in the field for about 15 years. But in, in all my courses, I, I mostly focus on the EU. As Kim said, I'm an EU specialist. But I also go into national politics of a number of the member states that I'm familiar with. But I, I always uh, studiously avoid teaching Italy because it's the one country I feel like I've never been able to understand. Yeah. Okay. And so this I viewed as a real intellectual challenge and took it on. Um, before I do get into the substance of my talk, I just, as an aside, since we were talking about some of those beautiful poems that you were reciting, and, and since you mentioned uh, that, uh, as far as you know, none of Merkel's ministers uh, recite poems to her, I just thought it's worth mentioning as an EU specialist that the president of the European Council, uh, the Belgian uh, bald and bespeckled Herman von Rompuy, is a published haiku poet. Uh, I just want to recite one of his poems to start out uh, on, on Brussels, is actually running... Uh, Italy now, so we might as well read. Uh, the title of the poem is Brussels. Different colors, tongues, towers, and gods, I search my way. Well, they are searching their way now, and it's very apt, although uh, that's, it, was, it was prescient because he wrote that some years ago. Anyway, let me turn to this wonderful book, which I, you know, I really enjoyed reading. And I mean, just to point out a few of the real strengths, beyond all the insight that Jan gave. I would just like to add one thing that I think wasn't mentioned. It's just such a beautifully written book. It's, it's lyrical. Uh, it's rich in uh, colorful um, anecdotes uh, on top of the deep uh, theoretical reflections that just give color and texture 
in, in a way that I, I was uh, pleased to hear you mentioning Garrett's because one of the first things I was going to say is that to me as an outsider in the field of political philosophy, this was as much a work of uh, cultural anthropology as it was a work of political philosophy, it seemed to me, really, in the sense that what this book gave to a sort of uh, positivist <laughs> political scientist like myself, uh, you know, it reminded me why we, we still need to focus on Frechtian and really understanding what is going on in a way that someone like me who's an outsider to Italy and just has never really been able to figure it out by reading this book, you, you finally, I finally have a sense of what, why on earth have they been reelecting this clown, right? And, uh, you know, what has been happening? So it, it gave me a deep um, understanding that I just hadn't uh, had before. So I thank you for that. Now, I wonder, what I want to do really in my comments is, on, on top of that praise, raise a few questions, things that came up for me with the book. Um, not criticisms, per se, but just issues where I would press for your, your thoughts and responses. And then I want to connect this, really turn back to my areas of strength more and interest, which is uh, focusing on contemporary European politics uh, and essentially looking a bit at the crisis right now, the troubles Italy is facing, and then reconnecting with your book by saying, how much of it can we blame on Berlusconi? And how much of it can we specifically blame on the problems with the regime type described in this book? And I'll, I'll say quite a lot. Right? So first, questions. A couple of the questions I had, maybe because I have so many uh, friends who are from Italy and uh, such uh, sympathy for them, that seeing how harsh you were on Italian uh, culture and basically uh, that I wanted to ask a couple things about that. I mean, how, how deep did the court system go? In the book, you really presented that it pervaded all of Italian society, really. But one of my questions was, well, how strong were those links the further you moved away from the epicenter, right? Uh, and I just wanted to have a bit more sense that the, the, those bonds, how strong were they as you moved further away? Yeah, you, you offer this kind of stark condemnation of at least major strains of Italian political culture, not all aspects. Um, but on the other hand, w isn't that unfair to those who hated Berlusconi? Because it wasn't just, a, as I understand it, it wasn't just a small segment of intellectuals. A lot of people hated him. It was a sizable chunk. We saw them um, uh, playing the Messiah the other day and uh, cheering and uh, shouting clown out with the clown, those things. So um, I guess <coughs> I, I wonder what you have to say about, you do talk about the opposition and their failings here, but were you a bit harsh uh, on them, uh, let's say, or, uh, or not, uh, let's say, uh, dismissing them a bit too much? All right. Um, because, you know, it just as a quote from a columnist uh, from uh, La Stampa, uh, Gramellini said uh, the other day something I read, no one had ever divided Italy and Italians so much as Berlusconi. So I just wonder, you know, do we need to recognize that sharp division? All right, so next things. Um, I want to go back to something that Jan uh, mentioned, which was clientelism. Uh, here I put on my hat as a scholar of comparative politics. And I thought the, the, your description of the court system was apt. It was perfect. It captured things. But I wondered how closely related is the court system to what we in comparative politics uh, describe as clientelism, which is, uh, I'm not going to go into great details here, but uh, clientelism is you know, essentially a system of power relations in which a, patr a patron uses their superior authority and resources to benefit an inferior client 
who reciprocates with support and services of various sorts. And that is a relationship like that you describe in your book, which is inherently, on the one hand, voluntarily voluntary, but at the same time coercive because of the imbalance. Now, scholars of Italian politics have talked about uh, how clientelism has persisted in certain regions, particularly the Mezzogiorno, you know, for, for ages, right? Through different regime types coming and going, there's always been clientelism. So should we understand the court system as the uh, ultimate embodiment and uh, sort of taking to a new level and uh, hoisting up at a national level uh, a form of clientelism, or, or do you really want to distinguish it from those more routine forms of clientelism? All right. Um, fine. And one last thing before I turn to the current situation, and that is you took uh, great pains, and I thought you were very convincing in distinguishing his regime type from uh, fascism, though you know, I appreciate the points Jan made in that regard, that it may be you know, a contemporary version <laughs> or something. But... That being said, I, I still wonder about the idea you have of voluntary servitude, which you came back to again and again in the book, which I found very compelling. It just really struck me. I mean, how much does that link with the notions we saw in fascism? If you look at Eric Fromm or you know, writers like that talking about escape from freedom and this you know, impulse uh, to, uh, to escape from freedom and uh, linking yourself to the authoritarian ruler, do you see it as a, a, a sort of version of that, or is it something profoundly different? All right, so now to turn to current situations. I want to talk about what ails Italy right now a bit and um, how much of it can we blame on Berlusconi. And, of course, I'm not going to go through all the details. Uh, you know, in part, the crisis that Italy's been in in the last few days uh, is uh, the fact that it's sort of the latest domino to fall in the, uh, the rapidly metastasizing uh, sovereign debt crisis. But I want to go a bit, uh, take a step back and look beyond it, look at the deeper problems. How did Italy get into this position? Uh, Italy's economy has been underperforming uh, for the past decade relative to other Eurozone economies. And, I mean, Italy's always had economic problems, we might say, or economic mismanagement, but I'm talking specifically in this decade, it has had a particularly severe underperformance relative to many of its peers in the Eurozone. Uh, the growth rate, even during the boom period prior to the, the recession and the Wall Street, uh, everything that happened in 2008 here, was only 1% per year for the years <coughs> up until the boom, when everyone else was growing much more quickly. So Italy wasn't growing quickly then. Uh, during the crisis, uh, GDP plunged quite rapidly, more so than uh, countries like Germany, which... Uh, dealt pretty well with the crisis, and Italy plunged by 5% since the crisis hit. Uh, so it's been underperforming. The, as you all have seen in the papers, the public debt is 120% of GDP, 2 trillion euros. Okay. How did we get to that position? Now, a lot of these ideas, I'm going to mix some thoughts of my own with, I want to give credit here uh, to a you know, brilliant article I found by my old boss from when I worked at the Center for European Policy Studies, uh, Daniel Gross, who maybe is the perfect commentator on this because he's a University of Chicago-trained German economist who grew up in Italy. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what does you know, he say and what will I add to that? Well, one of the things you know, that he pointed out that I think is very interesting is that, and this is where we'll eventually be able to blame Berlusconi for things, 
is that a lot of the things you normally look at in an economy to say, why is it underperforming? Why is it not growing? Well, actually, those can't be the cause of Italian poor performance in recent years. Italy, so what do you normally look at? Well, you often uh, would look at uh, things like uh, investment in physical and human capital. But actually, um, Italy has invested quite heavily in, in uh, physical and human capital over the past decade, much more so in relative terms than Germany, for instance. Nonetheless, Germany, I'm not going to get too much into economics here, but I mean, basically Italy's main problem is that they're, uh, in terms of competitiveness, is that what economists call their unit labor costs over the past decade compared to other Eurozone countries, right, have uh, gone up while those of Germany, for instance, have gone down. So in other words, uh, the amount of GDP produced by each worker in Italy relative to other European countries right, is going down. So they're paying more wages, getting less GDP produced for it. Okay, why, uh, now that's the problem. Is it uh, something due to lack of investment? No, as I said, Italy's been investing heavily. Italy has uh, invested close to 20% of its GDP in most years in, uh, um, has, has uh, been in investment. Um, but nevertheless, GDP has grown only about 5% in the whole past decade you add up uh, GDP growth over that decade. So they're not getting a return on their investment, okay? And also, if you look at investment in human capital, it's interesting because you talked in the book quite a bit about um, deteriorating standards of literacy and those things, and I take all your points. But if we just look at, for instance, the percent of the population in Italy holding a tertiary degree, right? Relative, so if we take as our baseline 2,000, they've had greater gains in the percent of population getting tertiary degrees than Germany has, for instance, right? Considerably. So they've been uh, investing more heavily than other countries in relative terms. They've been investing in their people. Even now, some people point to structural reforms. That's what we're, everyone's hoping uh, that Monty's going to do now, structural reforms. Well, not everyone, maybe, but let's say the neoliberals are hoping that Monty will tackle the rigidities in the labor market, these contracts which uh, protect... Uh, most uh, workers in dying industries and whatnot. But actually, if you look at the OECD, <coughs> which is uh, the, the organization that collects data on this sort of thing, and their, their indicators of structural reforms in terms of how much countries have tried to uh, undertake necessary uh, structural reforms in their product markets and their labor markets, Italy has actually, in the past decade, done rather well compared to other European countries. It's made gains in structural reforms. So this starts to seem bizarre. So, well, then what's going wrong? They're investing, they're educating their population. They are, in relative terms, making structural reforms, but they are losing competitiveness. What's going on? Well, here's the part of the story where we can blame it on Berlusconi. What's one set of indicators where Italy has done terribly, right? That is indicators collected by the World Bank and other, uh, some other international organizations on rule of law, government effectiveness, and control of corruption, okay? Where if you compare Italy's performance on all those indicators to the Eurozone average, right, of other countries in the Eurozone, Italy, over the past decade, has declined substantially, okay? So what we see, I would say, is that the court is infecting not just the body politic, but it's infecting the whole economy, right, in a sense, um, because, 
well, I'm not going to go into theories of this, but where rule of law is unreliable, where corruption is out of control, where government isn't viewed as effective, it's bad for economic performance. And I think that's a lot of what we see going on. Um, so that is Berlusconi's fault. Uh, now, a few last words. I have another minute, right? Um, on this issue of the, let's get to the democratic deficit issue and what's going on right now. Well, you know, essentially the EU has taken over Greece and Italy. Okay, uh, Papademos is Greek, Monti is Italian, but basically these are people from Brussels who are installed forming governments in these countries. Okay, now that raises profound questions uh, about democratic accountability issues we can talk about. But something I'd like to point out uh, that maybe a different cut on this, so rather unorthodox. Italians don't trust their own institutions. The, these numbers will even make US Congress happy, I think, when I tell you these. 16% of Italians trust parliament. That's about the same as Congress, actually. 15% trust their government. These are rough numbers from Eurobarometer surveys from the past few years. 13% trust political parties, okay? 44% of Italians trust the European Central Bank. 48% trust the European Commission. So if Monty, the professor, is essentially a European commissioner who's, okay, stepped down a few years ago, but if that's how he's seen, you can see what, I think there might be some legitimacy there if the alternative, right, is institutions which the vast majority of the populace has thoroughly lost faith in. Um, I'll stop there. <laughs> wow, thank you. Before we go to some questions, uh, I think I'd like, I see so many colleagues and friends, I think we should reserve as much time. And then I will respond at the end okay. to my very kind critics of the. Okay, that's terrific. And so the floor is open. We have a question over here. And Judy's got a mic over there. So if you could, right here in the green. I can speak loudly. Yeah, we're recording actually. So. A good reason to talk into the mic is so others outside of this room one day will hear you. Berlusconi's gone, so I have nothing to do. <laughs> right. So I was wondering, what do you think of the idea that Berlusconi is only the face of the problem of the corrupted political system in Italy and that in reality, although he's gone for now, the system remains as was before and that in reality we should not expect a new beginning because it remains as corrupt as it was before and things will continue as they have so far? Do you want to collect questions, or do you want to? Three, and then. OK. Next question, here in the front. Uh, Mauricio, you spoke of the enormous uh, power of uh, Berlusconi's uh, media empire. And uh, in this country, um, by the 1960s, the mid-60s, uh, certainly the Goldwater-Johnson election, uh, the media clearly chipped in one direction towards the Democratic Party. I think uh, studies show about 95% of uh, people surveyed uh, in elite media, meaning uh, the three networks uh, and uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post voted for the Democrats. The Republicans didn't like that, so uh, they came back and formed their own counter media, and particularly uh, in, in recent years, talk radio and later Fox News. Uh, was a countervailing power to what was perceived as the 
uh, left of center views of uh, the prevailing media. Is there anything comparable uh, in Italy? Is there a counter media, a left wing counter media uh, uh, to a Berlusconi uh, that uh, is uh, has uh, that has emerged uh, by opponents of uh, his uh, regime? Yeah, Fred has a question. Yeah, um, right here. Magnificent book, and I hear nothing from the great Machiavelli scholar about Niccolo Machiavelli or any other <laughs> Renaissance. Fred knows what will get more into your book. Look, so look if, if I would not be able to sleep tonight, and I would probably hang myself had I committed the crime of not using or citing Machiavelli properly in any. Work? How would I possibly? Could I possibly go back to Florence? I would. My life would be destroyed. I must immediately defend myself against this allegation. And it goes into. I have two answers. First, uh, in terms of the analysis, uh, I am relying on Machiavelli's magnificent, splendid statement that goes like this: "Is from Florentine history. If you allow a man to accumulate so much power in a city, the city is no longer free." Second statement of Machiavelli, only people capable of uh, practicing civic virtue, resisting tyranny, who are wise, people who are wise in seeing the dangers before it's too late, are capable of remaining free. So Machiavelli gives me both in this book. The starting point for the interpretation of the reality and the indication of a possible view uh, for redemption, for the recovery, for the transition from the liberty of servants to the liberty of citizens. No, no, I, couldn't, I would never make a step without the assistance of the Niccolo. Uh, you are right, uh, Russ, about certainly the left-wing uh, media in Italy, Repubblica, uh, is the most distinctive uh, one. Some uh, uh, networks, uh, television networks, but the the disproportion is remarkable. What I mean by this is that uh, every night on Italian televisions, you were seeing uh, programs in a way or another supportive of Berlusconi's language, and only one or two programs that were critical. But critical voices existed in it, and this I would like to say something about Dan's observation. They were not silenced. That's why I resist the analogy Berlusconi-Mussolini. Mussolini is silenced. There's December 1925, the voices of free press. Berlusconi has not done. He had made life difficult to journalists to appear, critics of Berlusconi government were not allowed, were expelled from television, but liberty of press, of press was still there. But the disproportion of the weapons available was, uh, and still is, remarkable. And the question is, why has the left allowed uh, Berlusconi to form such a huge media empire? That's why I spoke in the book severely, I'm equally severe, uh, severe to the Italian people and to the elite of the left, because I speak of betrayal of the elite. That's another discussion. But certainly, I've not understood how dangerous it was to allow such an enormous power to uh, put roots to exist in Italy. 
The second uh, observation for this first question, Berlusconi just the surface. This answers in part also Dan's uh, questions. Berlusconi is not just the surface. Political corruption has always existed in Italy. I don't even question whether or not, I'm not that curious of knowing if it is more now than it was in the past, probably is more widespread. But what really worries me are two facts. One is uh, that now political corruption is practiced openly. They don't even need to justify themselves. Because they say, look at Berlusconi. Why should we not imitate those who are on top? Again, Machiavelli. We should, you cannot blame the people for the vices, uh, the vi for their vices, because they imitate the prince. The second is even more, I think, uh, uh, relevant also to Dan's question. Of course, the system of clientelism has always existed in Italy. But what we have seen different in Berlusconi's era is the degree of subservience, of the willingness to obey to Berlusconi consistently. You see, I have a list of laws that were clearly unconstitutional. And in fact, the Constitutional Court rejected them. But the, the majority of the parliament voted for them. As of two months ago, the majority of the Italian parliament, 13, 314 votes in favor, supported the idea sustained by one of the uh, servants of Berlusconi, the, a lawyer called Panitz, a formidable man, who asserted that when Berlusconi called the, the police officer in Milan, to ask him to release Miss Ruby, who was accused of some transactions with drugs. And he said Berlusconi, you know, uh, officer, he says, here is uh, Berlusconi. You must <laughs> release this young woman uh, because, you know, she's the nephew of, of Mubarak, the leader of Egypt. We don't want to have international complications. And he sent, Berlusconi sent his formal dental hygienist, Miss uh, Minerbetti, who now serves in the uh, council, in the regional council of Lombardy, to rescue the girl. And she took uh, the, the alleged nephew of Mubarak to the, in the house of a Brazilian prostitute. Now, the parliament of Italy has voted in favor of this. Now, the case, is, to me, is simple. Either you have to call an ambulance and say they are brain damaged, <laughs> or they are serving the will of a man. And this has never been seen, even in a country with impeccable credentials in terms of uh, clientelism, as Italy is. Uh, we have a question um, up in the back. I, I wanted to talk about the, uh, your uh, prognosis for the future. Uh, towards the end, you were talking about the Constitution perhaps providing a foundation for civic regeneration. Um, 
I wonder whether within your own classical Republican inspirations, you really find room for optimism on that front. Um, as Jan was worrying about the democratic deficit and change now, or this, the whole question of clientelism, uh, voluntary servitude, uh, whether you really think that the Constitution can serve as anything more than a barrier to complete collapse. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Can I respond rapidly? Uh, because it addresses also uh, a, a problem that Jan touched upon very importantly. I, one, if I have to consider myself one brief moment of optimism, brief, uh, has to be that the Constitution has proven in Italy to be stronger than Berlusconi so far, in factual terms. And uh, it, the, the Constitution in Italy, uh, when I say that, I mean that much to my surprise, I've seen demonstrations, young people carrying the Constitution. Instead of the red flag, they were carrying the Constitution. Doesn't mean that the Italians, they all know uh, the, uh, all the uh, articles of the Constitution, which I have here to be prudent, is uh, they have understood that there is a, a core set of civic values in the Constitution that are shared. That's why uh, Jan is gone. I will respond to him in private. That's why I think that the basis for the indignation, not as a, as a, a fleeting sentiment, but as a basis of a strong uh, civic sense, is the Constitution in Italy, because uh, it is perceived as being a, a, a formidable bastion, in the sense that you are indicating. That's marvelous, your question. Because the article of the Constitution, the uh, art number 67, says uh, members of the parliament are uh, representatives of the nation, sono rappresentano la nazione, and they exercise their uh, mandate without any vincolo di mandato. They do not have a mandate, not as if they have the mandate from the voters, not even from the, their own constituency. It means that the Constitution says that as you sit in the parliament, you have to represent the nation, namely the general interest of the nation. And it tells you that if you want to, uh, if you uh, swear on the Constitution, you commit yourself not even to sustain the interests of your constituency, you have to be able to mediate, to enlarge them, to elevate them. And this, I think, is extremely important if you want to try to produce a different political elite in Italy. So actually, uh, George, uh, back to Great. Thank you, Kim. Uh, professor, um, at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned the well-publicized uh, empathy, uh, or at least a good relationship between uh, Berlusconi and uh, President, uh, now soon to be President again, Putin, of Russia. And I was wondering if you could amplify on that. It seems to me that um, there are similar, there's significant similarities in the governing styles. Um, uh, the similar characteristics in, in the um, uh, regime structures, including what you refer to as the ownership of the governing party, uh, the um, almost total control of the mass media, especially the broadcast media, with limited subsistence of a, uh, an opposition print media. 
there seem to be similarities in, in personal governing styles, um, ostensible deference to the Constitution uh, and uh, to the rule of law while bypassing uh, the official le legislative process to achieve um, regime goals and maintaining this direct uh, and uh, quasi-demagogic um, relationship with the demos through carefully uh, orchestrated appearances and images. And then finally, the, um, the encouragement uh, and, uh, and the exploitation of what you referred to as the uh, servile mentality, or at least a sort of willing acquiescence on the part of a large part of the population to uh, an effective loss of personal liberty in the political sphere in exchange for the promise of public order, uh, and a significant degree of personal liberty in the purely personal sphere, as well as the care and feeding of a um, corrupt and highly responsive vertically bureaucracy. So as we used to be asked in our uh, Princeton undergraduate classes, could you compare and contrast perhaps <laughs> a little more? And how is it, uh, in your view, that the Italian structure could come to be so similar to the sort of post-Soviet Russian structure. The similar loves the similar. That's the basis for the understanding between Berlusconi and Putin. And uh, this allows me to go back to uh, one of the questions posed by Jan. Um, what was the goal of Berlusconi? Had he, he, had he been able to attain his goal, what would his goal have been? A power with no limitations, just like Putin. A, a, a power that is not subject to the limitations imposed by a constitution, by the presence of institutions like the president of the republic, and so on and so forth. That is what we political theorists, we call autocracy. Berlusconi would have liked to become like Putin, and they have the same sense of the state as something that belongs to them, that they can own just as much as they own properties. Now, in, uh, I'd like to, uh, that's I think is the analogy, to compare with uh, America. It's, it, it would require a, a long speech, and uh, only consideration that I have is this. In, uh, uh, in Italy, I've seen, as you put it, a willingness, an inclination on the part of many, too many, not all of them, but too many, citizens to see beauty in serving a man. You have no idea how uh, many uh, articles in newspapers, declarations, statements. The last one is from a, comes from a member of the parliament, Miss Gabriella uh, Carlucci, I think is her name. Gabriella Carlucci, yes, I think who betrayed Berlusconi, she voted against him, producing the, uh, the lack of majority in the parliament. As of a week before, she said, Berlusconi is the model for my daughters. I always point to Berlusconi as the model for my daughters, particularly for his sexual prowess. Now, this is something that, this type of willingness to see beauty in serving a man I've never, I've been in this country now 25 years. I've never seen anything like this. The ethos is different. Uh, yeah, there's a question here. Yes, sorry. Uh, yeah. uh, I enjoyed reading the book, although I find its analysis 
deeply misleading, uh, and let me say why. Um, you <laughs> seem to lack an explanation of the variation in support for Berlusconi within Italy. This variation is especially clear at the regional level. Some regions supported Berlusconi more than others. And at the level of social classes, some social classes were supporting Berlusconi much more than others. Uh, I'll give you just, just, just one thing that doesn't fit with your, with your theory. Uh, the idea that clientelism has played such a big role in Berlusconi's system does not explain why southern regions such as Campania, Puglia, Basilicata, Calabria, have long been in the hands of the center-left for the past decade. So how would, you, how would you explain that? And in general, how do you explain that those who supported Berlusconi and those who did not? Oh, that's a, that's a marvelous question. Those uh, who supported Berlusconi, they did it for various reasons. Sometimes they were fascinated, sometimes they were expecting benefits, sometimes they simply were misled. Now, as for, uh, uh, and you had other people who uh, rejected or were, uh, who opposed Berlusconi, some of them on social grounds, others on moral grounds. But the, uh, your uh, um, idea that I have to take into account the regional differences and social differences, well, I don't see uh, why it changes the general uh, scope, the general, uh, the general picture. I can say that, as you know perfectly well, that Berlusconi's uh, consensus was particularly strong in uh, lower social classes, in the uneducated. It's true. Yes. Oh, yes. Good. In fact, uneducated. I was, I'm, I'm uneducated. And uh, sometimes uneducated and wealthy. They were the strongest supporters of Berlusconi in many regions. Now, the fact that you have the strongest support for Berlusconi in Lombardy up until six months ago uh, does not change the fact that the sources or the motivation for that support were of the kind that I have described. I never sustained that Berlusconi, the support for Berlusconi was general in terms of uh, geographic distribution and equally spread among the different social classes. I am only saying that the sources of Berlusconi's power, main source of Berlusconi's power, was the capacity to fascinate and to deliver the privileges. The fact that this was more effective in Lombardy and less effective in Tuscany has also to do with the, the existence of particular, of particular political traditions in Tuscany or in Puglia. It has also to do with the fact that in regions like uh, uh, Emilia-Romagna you had perhaps better local administrators. But the case that you're citing of Campania, you, have to, you know perfectly well that the region was governed by the center-right for a while. It actually is governed by the center-right. Well, you see, there are fluctuations. It also depends who are the opponents and who are the existing political uh, traditions. But I don't see how the social stratification, the geographic differences affect the basic theory that one that power was enormous. 
Period. Um, next question, uh, Gabra Holmeyer, over here. So I do not want to, to challenge your optimism concerning the, the Constitution, but uh, I would like to ask you, what, what is the very basis of your, your trust, uh, despite the fact that you, you, you claim that the respect... Uh, 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 for the Constitution, both in the population and in the, the political uh, uh, actors, is one of the characteristics of, of Berlusconi's uh, system. So who, who can be the guardian of, of that, that Constitution in a system, as, as Dan Kellerman also mentioned, where the court system is, is, is hardly independent. Most probably also the constitutional court is hardly independent in a system like, like this. So what, what is the real basis for that optimism? That optimism? Uh, adding the fact that, that it seems to me that currently the European Union is really not in the position to to uh, protect constitutional values in the member states. So it, it happened with very, many other countries who violated basic European constitutional values and the European Union had no means to, to intervene. It's a simple, uh, my optimism uh, has two sources. The first is a fact, namely in 2006, Italians were called to uh, vote in a referendum. The referendum was whether to approve or, or reject the uh, profound constitutional reform passed by the Berlusconi government. They had changed something like 53 articles in a constitution of 139 articles. It was a profound, uh, profound reform, a, a new constitution, not just a reform. Well, the uh, reform passed by the Berlusconi uh, government was rejected by a majority of about 60% of the votes. That's a lot. And the second concern is a uh, reason for optimism is a fact, again. Maybe every time we have seen a conflict between uh, uh, Berlus uh, laws passed by Berlusconi's government and uh, the Supreme Court, the majority of the public opinion has uh, uh, sided with the Supreme Court, or Constitutional Court, Corte Constitutionale. One, uh, there is also another consideration is this. Even for a, a certified realist as I am in politics, you know that if you want to say words that help processes of civic regeneration, you have to be severe, as my friend, colleague Dan, you have to be severe, I think. You have to be severe with your compatriots if you love your country. The more you love it, the more you have to be severe with them. It's like being a father. If you love your children, you have to correct them. If you let them go, you have to lenient. You, you do not educate them. Well, uh, if you want to, when you are severe, then you must uh, be able to say words that indicate some possible way out. And the only one that we have is the Constitution. In addition to some memories of the past. Well, 
One last question, actually. Uh, Jerry Boswell. Just there, Judy. My question is really about sovereignty and the perception of sovereignty, and it goes to some of the polling that Daniel Cullerman spoke about in terms of how the parliament and the governmental system in Italy is looked upon and how it is so uniformly disregarded. I mean, the, the numbers are incredibly low, as they are in the United States. And what I find interesting is their belief that the, in terms of the EU that there is something less corruptible and more, uh, more impressive, something that they're willing to embrace. And the question that I would have first to Kellerman and then to Mauricio is that, is this also true in, say, Greece and Spain, that their attitude is that their country is corrupt, their institutions are failing, but they can look outside to the EU? And then the question that I expand this a little is to what the hell's going on in the United States. We see the same challenge to the institutions, the numbers are all very low. But there's no question whatsoever that the United States, those who are upset, never look outside. I mean, no one is looking to, the, to any outside entity to help straighten out our problems. Is there a change in the attitude to sovereignty? Is it just simply the love of the country as opposed to some sort of concept that the country is going to survive as a political entity, as a functioning political entity? Well, I'll say something quickly on that. I think there is a change in attitude. There's, uh, in general, very different attitudes on that topic in uh, EU member countries than, let's say, here in the US, right? Uh, the general trend, I'd say European uh, citizens, when they're polled, they're actually, they're quite, uh, their, their views reflect the truth in the sense that if you uh, ask Finns, do you trust the EU more or your government, they tend to trust their government institutions which is quite right because they're incredibly transparent, they have very little corruption, so you can look up members of parliament's credit cards uh, statements online. You know, so they're right to trust their own institutions. It tends to be the countries that have higher levels of corruption, right, and domestically, where citizens trust the EU more, relatively. Greece is a bit of an exception, but generally, uh, yeah, the worse your country is governed, the more you trust the EU. The same is true for Italy. Uh, in uh, political debates, the idea is the, the prevailing, uh, I would also almost say commonplace is, uh, our salvation can only come from Europe. Uh, we, if, the idea is you have to remain attached to Europe if you don't want to fall into Africa. Italy, consider the geography of, of, of Italy. Of Italy, the, um, but this can backlash. Namely, you can have forces that say, and probably Berlusconi will say, Europe has caused the crisis of my government. You have elected me. Who are they who, including the President of the Republic, forced me to resign? And uh, the North, not to mention the North and the League. So it's a, uh, I have an idea of how to to confront this type of rhetoric, but we will. I save it for another occasion. All I would like to say uh, in conclusion of this, for me important and exciting, uh, absorbing debate is uh, go back to the question raised by Jan Werner Müller. When he said, should we regard Italy as an exception or as the anticipation? Is just uh, the Berlusconi era. 
yet another example of the Italian propensity to create political buffoons, or is, is that is, should that experience be studied and analyzed serious because it contains a warning for any democratic country? Well, I say, I don't know. Maybe Italy is uh, just an exception, but it's unwise to assume that it is just an exception. It's much wiser to think that any democratic country is vulnerable to the combined power of media, money, and ownership of a political party. So it's better to prepare again with Machiavelli, defenses ahead of time, not when it is too late, because once you have fallen, you have allowed the formation of a power as enormous as the one of Berlusconi is very, very difficult to regain the dignity of the civil way of living. Thank you.